right, welcome to another episode of the American Veteran Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by our National Executive Director for AMVETS, Joe Schinelli, uh, AMVETS Chief Advocacy Officer, Sherman Gillums, and I am your Communications Manager here at AMVETS HQ, Miles Migliera. Uh, today, we're here to talk all about the VA Mission Act. Um, as we know, it's been implemented since June 6th. Uh, We've seen the access standards. We've even heard from the president and the secretary themselves on a joint call where they shared one line, the president and the secretary themselves, and the other line was over 10,000 veterans who got to personally hear uh, from them about the VA Mission Act, uh, what they expect it to do, and just the amount of veterans that it's going to impact. So we've got, as far as AMVETS is concerned, the two people who know the most about the Mission Act who have studied it, I think, I think it's fair to say, who have just studied it the most uh, so far. Um, so I really want to open it up to you two to kind of get your thoughts on whatever we want to talk about, the access standards, uh, you know, how soon it was rolled out, because, you know, as Joe had mentioned earlier, um, this is just one of these things, veterans health care, even if it did maybe get rolled out a little bit early, we have to roll it out kind of as soon as possible once we've got most of the kinks figured out because veterans need health care now. So with that being said, uh, let's start with uh, with Sherman. So what's, what are your initial thoughts on the the act itself, the access standards, and, and what have you seen that, uh, that kind of gives you hope moving forward? Well, I'll refer back to the point you made earlier about Joe and I being the most knowledgeable uh, about the act. We were actually a big part of how this thing came to be. We worked with Congress and the VA to ensure that there were protections built in. I know we emphasized due process during the uh, what we call the sausage-making stage of this, this bill, uh, this law. Um, so once it was signed, it represented the work of a lot of people, not just the VA. They didn't do this in a back room somewhere. Although there were a few things in the law that um, we weren't necessarily part of, such as the uh, market assessments where they determine uh, how the quality of the care at a given hospital. Those things are still in the works. But uh, my, my first impression from the outside looking in was this is a lot of information to digest for all the veterans that will be impacted, a whole lot of information. And most of them got the letter and the brochure in the mail. Uh, I asked my wife, who's a veteran, what she thought, and it was just, it, it almost was so much that it meant nothing at the same time. So. Most folks didn't know how to uh, take the new law, uh, didn't know where they fit in in the grand scheme of things. But I would encourage every veteran to take the time at least to find out what you're eligible for under the new law, uh, specifically care in the community when you can't get care in the VA, uh, or your doctor recommends you get care outside the VA uh, from a community provider. We can do that through, through AMVETS, through some of the videos that we, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we will start shooting out some of the videos that we've created, uh, that you've created as far as uh, criteria for eligibility and just other things that are going to help uh, veterans, I don't want to say in layman's terms, but help simplify the overwhelming uh, structure that is a new era in, in veteran healthcare. Sure. The videos, uh, which were created by our HEAL team, that's a big part of our mission through the AMVETS HEAL team, is to educate on healthcare specifically so that when you do go into a facility or you do access care uh, per the Mission Act, 
you're actually eligible because if you're not, you're going to pay for it out of pocket. And we want to make sure that many veterans um, that suffered under the Choice Act, where things were unclear, don't have that same problem under the Mission Act. So um, eligibility is, is probably the best place to start if you're a veteran wondering how this law impacts you. Start with determining what you're eligible for, how that eligibility is determined, and have a conversation with your primary care physician about what community care looks like under this new law uh, as it relates to you know you specifically as that veteran. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, Joe, what, I guess same question, what kind of initial thoughts did you have uh, as, as we've seen the implementation, the access standards uh, heard from the president and the secretary? Right, so I'm, I'm encouraged by the uptick in the communication from the VA, from the administration, and um, I think they're counting heavy on you know, organizations like AMVETS here to be able to help do that. You know, We have 250,000 members all over the country, so we're out there trying to let them know, you know what this means to them, how they can participate, how this can better their health care, and bottom line, we, we want them to come into the VA system to, you know, we talk all about, uh, you know, suicide prevention and, you know, a huge percentage of those veterans who are dying by suicide are not, they're eligible for VA care, but they're not receiving it. And they're not receiving it because they think the VA doesn't care about them or it's because it's not convenient or because they just don't understand the system. So we're taking that upon ourselves and, uh, you know, this podcast here is, you know, just one small part of that. And I'm sure we'll have some future podcasts as this continues to develop as well. Um, you know, Congress kind of gave the VA a chance to put the brakes on, on this about a month before it was supposed to roll out. So, you know, we were there with the president when he signed this bill back in June of last year uh, in the Rose Garden. And we knew at that point they, they had a year to get the access standards created to get the whole structure and it's pretty massive structure here. You know, as Sherman said, we were, we were uh, a part of developing those access standards and how it would work, and this is all integrated with the electronic health care record system and everything else. Um, and then 11 months into those, that 12 months, Congress said, you know what, why don't you guys put the brakes on this and take another however much longer you need, you know, another six months or something. And to VA's credit, they said, no, this is important. We're going get to get this out now, and, you know, it might not be perfect, but it'll work. And we think they've done that um they didn't do a whole lot of communicating until then and so now they're doing that and you have the call with the president and uh they're they're doing different you know, different web activities mm-hmm. and uh direct mailings and we're, we're starting to see billboards and uh you know secretary wilkie's in the news more often but um really in the end this comes down to the veteran informing him or herself and we want to be helpful in that yeah and can i make a point based on what joe said um, uh, folks need to understand that when a law is passed, there's sort of two phases to it. One, the Congress and, and the President, they need to do their job and, and get it enacted. But the second part of it is implementation, and that falls to the federal agencies. This law will only be as good as the local facility's ability to execute mm-hmm. what the intent was. And because we already know that the VA is different, you know, wherever you go, you're not going to have the same experience at every medical center. The law will get implemented differently, and uh, by having an, a basic education about the law, at least veterans can help d- define their care per the new law. Uh, I call it forcing the system to uh, meet our needs. So if you if you at, if you're at a facility, let's say in in Missouri, and you find that they don't have the decision support tool, which is the 
uh, interface used to determine eligibility uh, because of budget or, or myriad reasons. There could be any number of reasons why they don't have it. You know, as a veteran, you need to have this or you can't uh, deny my ability to access uh, just because your technology hadn't caught up. And, and I think that was one of the reasons why there was some idea that it could be delayed, the IT wasn't uh, where it needed to be. Uh, but Joe's right, this thing had to get implemented, um, get as many veterans help as possible, uh, but, but we don't expect perfection. Uh, at this point, we expect there to be a, a bit of a trial and error sense in these hospitals. Uh, but if veterans are educated, then, then they can direct their care despite those, those uh, mishaps and slip-ups, mm -hmm. uh, which is ultimately what we hope happens through the education campaign we have on the Mission Act. Yeah. And we need to be educated. We need veterans to be telling us wh where things are not working. And obviously, if they see things working well, too, we need them to talk about that. But we know um, it's much easier to articulate when there's something wrong. And so we need to know that. We're going to continue to track that, and not just individually, but regionally. We're going to be looking to see where uh, things might not be working. It, there might be systemic where something's not working nationally, but we think you know, probably the likelihood of problems will be uh, in a particular region. It could be any region out there, and we'll track. And if we're getting a lot of complaints from certain areas, you know, we're going to do what we can to investigate. And uh, you know, our HEAL program has licensed practitioners on staff, so that they're they're experts in this. And we're looking at every single one of them and tracking it and looking for you know, uh, patterns of problems, then we'll let the VA know, but we'll also let Congress know. So this next question, which I kind of personally just had, and it's up to either one of you, is uh, I, th I believe that most veterans, when they saw the access standards, the part they focused on was the, the mileage and the, uh, the amount of time it would take to get an appointment, whether it be a general appointment or a specialized appointment. Um, can you guys, can either one of you explain kind of the biggest difference in, in that and whether you think, you know, it, it's a better setup than what was originally kind of put out through uh, community care access or or what, you know, or if you think that there's a couple of, uh, you know, hiccups that need to be fixed up in that area? So we haven't really, so it's 30-minute drive or... What's the, the it's 30 minutes for primary care, 60 minutes for specialty care. And so this was to try to address the whole as the eagle flies. Mm -hmm. you know, so the, the standard before was a certain number of miles. Well, you know, 15 miles in New York City is a whole lot different than 15 miles in Kentucky. You know, and so trying to balance that out, and that's something we're certainly going to have to wait and see how well that actually works. You know, so they went out and uh, the VA didn't try to create something new the, using existing technology to be able to determine how long it takes to drive from point A to point B and determine if what's convenient and medically appropriate or not. Um, yeah, and on the face of it, it doesn't look too different. Um, we're hopeful as it evolves that it'll become more different and more convenient and more real. We were told when uh, we asked that question of the VA leadership, that the it's a geospatial technology satellites that somehow we all see with their GPS. I guess there's a similar system they're going to use to track how much time it should take. That will take into consideration traffic, and it'll average out over time as it gets used more. Um, how long it takes someone to get from uh, their home, their front door, to a VA medical center for the type of care that they need. 
Um, I that's probably one area where we expect there to be continued debate about what's best because they still own the means of determining what that drive time is, mm -hmm. and it may differ from what the veteran can come up with per a, a GPS readout, a screenshot of a of a uh, any any application that shows you how long it'll take to get somewhere, Google Maps, for example. Um, so you've got hard evidence of how long it should take you based on that tracker, but if they're relying on something different and we can't see what that is, well, how do we know if we're eligible or not? And that's that's one of the biggest areas of concern that I had, uh, is that many veterans, uh, they have to call in to find out what that mileage is, um, and it may drastically differ. Uh, Joe mentioned New York City and Kentucky. I can tell you, just uh, you, you get an appointment at the wrong time in D.C. It'll tell, in the winter time, for example, it'll take you four times the amount of time. Right. Um, so it, it, it's different from the distance calculator that was used in their choice, but the driving time, uh, it just I, I think it just shifted the problem. It didn't really solve the problem. And I'd rather see uh, veterans uh, more empowered uh, in, in, in the process of determining how long uh, uh, the drive time should be for a given appointment. Yeah. I you know, some of the technology out there is kind of exciting if they could actually make it work. So I drive from Washington, D.C. to Rochester, New York, and back every week. And it's about 380 miles. And I use, and I'm just give a little plug here for the Waze app. I'll I turn that on when I'm leaving work on a, a Friday, and it will tell me how long, what time I can expect to arrive home 380 miles away. And it is incredibly accurate. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me. And I, you know it's only going to improve like everything in, in the tech world. And so if they're able to really apply that, to be able to really determine. And Waze can tell me, it, it's telling me at 380 miles because it knows it, it's tracking patterns. And it's not the only app out there that does that. There's several apps that do this. Um, it tracks you know, the average tra traffic. It knows when I'm going to hit Harrisburg. If I'm going to hit it during a time where you know, that, that particular road that I'm on is going to be congested or not, it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing. And I'm glad to see the VA's trying to use that. Now, we'll see how it works in practical purposes. But The, the demo I saw um, was a screen, uh, the, the decision support tool was a screen that contained different drop downs, and one of the drop downs included drive time. Um, It'll work if every hospital uses it the same way and, and deploys it the same way. Uh, but again, I'd, I'd rather veterans have some idea, even if it was housed within My Healthy Vet, something we have access to. Maybe we mm -hmm. don't control it, but we can see for ourselves, okay, and make decisions based on that. Uh, but it's a little hard to make a decision on a, on a factor that, that you can't see until you make a phone call at a VA where they may not answer the phone as diligently as others. So um, I, I think it's it's going to hang a lot of people out there unless the VA gets good at and, and efficient at giving this information to the veteran uh, timely so they can make a decision about their care and community. Yeah. Um, so just again to mention that we will be rolling out uh, videos with even more detail uh, regarding the VA Mission Act because our goal is to just, uh, as Joe said, keep the veteran as informed, uh, letting veterans inform themselves, which in turn is us putting out information. So we'll start to roll out those videos on our social media. Uh, and even I was thinking on our website through our heel page, which if you go to anvets.org, what we do, and you'll find the, uh, the heel team uh, tab, uh, we'll start kind of plugging those in uh, towards the bottom of the page uh, underneath 
what it explains our heel team is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but perfect. I, I know I had mentioned that this would be an all Mission Act uh, podcast, but I did kind of want to spend the last couple of minutes that we had uh, talking about an op-ed that you recently wrote uh, about just kind of the uh, the Army's aging Humvee uh, fleet situation and what we probably, I say we, but you know, we call on maybe Congress or the Department of Defense to do to kind of fix it. So uh, June 6th, uh, multiple West Point cadets were injured and one killed in uh, Cornwall, New York, uh, during a, it was a training exercise, yes, I believe, right? And um, yeah, if you could, after that you had written an op-ed kind of addressing the problem and uh, a couple of personal encounters that you had and what we can kind of do to kind of help uh, dilute that problem. Uh, could you spend a couple of minutes talking about you know, what people could find in that op-ed? Sure. Uh, for those who hadn't read the op-ed, uh, I opened it with a, um, a story I had about a, a Marine who was injured in Iraq. The very first Marine, in fact, that I had encountered as he started to come back paralyzed. Um, he was injured in a Humvee rollover, which isn't unusual, except it wasn't combat-related. He broke his neck because the Humvee rolled over. Um, and while some of that was expected given the way they were the retrofitted uh, with, the, um, with the additional equipment to block IEDs, to block explosives, to block bullets, it made them top-heavy. And so if you, if you, hit a, uh, if you couldn't get traction, uh, let's say on a hill with a, with a slant, you would, it would topple over. Or brakes, you know, they didn't have the anti anti lock braking systems or, or whatever braking systems which to cars that. have. Well, every and every right. vehicle must have it. If you're yeah. on if you're on a public freeway, you have to have it. So the question is, with and it, it's particular to the aging Humvee fleet, not not the newer ones, mm-hmm. but the aging ones that are not going away. I mean, if you if you remember boot camp, I think we used uh, you know Vietnam era uh, Vietnam War era gear during training because our, you know military is not going to replace everything. So in this case. Uh, it became especially a, not the Marine Corps. Especially, we're going to get all the all the stuff the Army doesn't want. Um, but in this case, you've got aging Humvees. You know that there's a rollover problem, and it always comes down to money. And when it, when you have that conversation, for us, it's about money versus lives. For the bean counters in D.C., it's it's just money. Mm-hmm. What is it going to cost us? And so we think that this problem, even though you don't have ten thousand uh, fatalities. We, we see one where you potentially had 13. 12 were injured, one was killed. And if you look at the stats going back a little bit, uh, it peaked around 2005 when the, they, the, the um, up armored Humvees first uh, were deployed um, and you had all these rollovers. So uh, what I called for is, is Congress to take a look at uh, supporting the, the Defense Department with additional resources to retrofit the older Humvees if they're still going to use them in training. And in the case you mentioned, I believe it was a... Uh, a service academy, one of the schools. It was, yeah, um, United States Service Academy. And in full disclosure, my, my daughter heads off to uh, Naval Academy Prep School next month, um, not to mention all the other young men and women who literally are putting their lives in the hands of their commanders to make the right decision. And in this case, we think that they owe it to their, um, the, the leaders owe it to the, those who follow them to give them as safe a training experience as possible um, so that they all come home in one piece, um, and instead of uh, in a flag draped coffin, because of a of a, of a rollover. Right. Joe, do you have anything to add? 
Well, I, I drove a Humvee in Iraq back in 2003 and 2004, and the upper armor we had were sandbags. You know, <laughs> Which is funny is I asked, I said, for some reason, yesterday, I said, do you have any experience with Humvees? And you said, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, I lived out of one for about eight months. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, those things with the way they were, and they were the Vietnam-era Humvee, and you could drive those things up extremely uh, steep inclines and, mm-hmm. and down them as well, and uh, even going, you know, horizontally uh, through them. And they were very, they were not top-heavy whatsoever, you know, but they also provided no protection from IEDs, which, mm-hmm. of course killed so many of our you know fellow veterans during that time so you have to find this happy medium and you know that's there the technology is there now so congress needs to not just provide the funding for the pentagon but to force them to use it on mm-hmm. it and you know, i know there's a lot of uh, a lot of equipment needs out there but maybe we'll buy a couple less jets and make sure the guys who are on the ground are safe absolutely well perfect uh sherman thanks for uh for being on the podcast today, uh, the Mission Act is obviously one of our larger priorities. That you know, with every step that's taken to kind of enhance it, we'll we'll definitely uh, be in, try to either be involved in or, or put our input in, or at least track it. Um, and I'm sure all veterans will as well. Um, so with that being said, this has been Joe Schinelli, uh, Sherman Gillums, and Miles Migliera of AMVETS National Headquarters. Mm-hmm.